Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this edition of Loving Liberty. And now I'm going to ask you to forgive me because I'm going to start on a really weird note. Some would even say kind of a morbid note, but hey, what can I say? Occasionally, my travels throughout the Internet take me places that uh, I, would not, uh, I wouldn't normally have gone to. And, and I had no idea that this is a subject that would ever come up for discussion on this program. But here we go. Here we are. <laughs> Let's make the most of it. I don't know if you like your job. A lot of people have a love-hate relationship with how they make a living. Some people, you know, barely tolerate it, and other people just love what they do. How would you like to be Vladimir Lenin's body conservationist? It's a job I didn't even know existed until I saw the article, and actually it was a photo essay, no less, that uh, that lays out uh, what it takes to be the body conservationist for Lenin. Now, look. You've probably heard of Lenin's mausoleum. If you've ever been to Red Square in Moscow, maybe you visited. See, I'm, I'm young enough that uh, when I first heard of uh, Lenin's mausoleum, I thought, what a weird place to bury John Lennon. You know, after all, he was killed in America. But nope, Vladimir. Vladimir Lenin died. I think he was uh, he died in, uh, what was it, early 1924. And since that time, for nearly 100 years, they've kept his body on display. Now, interesting fact, but uh, did you know that dead bodies have a tendency to, uh, how can I put this delicately, decompose, to rot, to basically return to their primary elements, and this is just uh, what happens. That's, you know, that's the way nature ordained it. So to keep him preserved, and not only preserved in the sense like, you know, a mummy is preserved, right? They dried them out, they preserved them, uh, the the Egyptians did, but, uh, you know, a mummy looked nothing like the person did when they were living. Vladimir Lenin, on the other hand, he's on display. Like his dead body is right there for people to see. And one of the remarkable things is people say it's it's astonishing. He doesn't look like he has decomposed in the least. Well, apparently uh, this is this is why the father of the revolution, that being the Bolshevik revolution, When he's on public display, between the lighting and some of the cosmetics, they actually have a very thin layer of rubber that they place over him, which uh, uh, under which are the embalming fluids. His skin is is not the prettiest color, but there's there's a kind of thin layer of flesh colored rubber. And and it looks at least from from the photos I'm seeing. It's really impressive. I mean, he, he looks like, well, he's just, you know, taking a nice long dirt nap. But here's where it gets really wild. Apparently about every other year, so biannually, to preserve the body, they have to give him a special bath in chemicals. Now, look, they, they initially wanted just to pump embalming fluids through his veins. And, and I'm sorry if, they, you know, if this is interfering with your breakfast or anything, if you're like, oh, well, why are you talking about this? My apologies. But it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Essentially, what they're doing is trying to pickle the body, but they couldn't do that because his veins had already been cut. The blood vessels had already been cut by his physicians, you know, following his death, you know, part of his autopsy, I would assume. 
So instead, they can't use those those traditional methods of conservation. So they they for some reason they don't just want his body preserved, but they want it to remain supple. And the traditional methods of pickling and formaldehyde and whatnot will make a body stiff and fragile, plus discolor the skin. And they only last for a couple of decades. So instead, they, they uh, bathe him in this chemical bath. It takes about six weeks to do so. But apparently, this keeps the body limber and uh, apparently makes it easy for them to put him, dress him up and put him back on display. Now, another method they could have used is plastin- plastination, which basically turns the liquids in the body into polymers, but that makes the body very unnaturally rigid. If you've ever been to the uh, bodies in motion display or the, the human body display, I know this was down in Vegas uh, just a few years ago. Actual human bodies donated to science, and they, they you know fill them with this plastomer to where you can actually see the body perfectly preserved, but it's now the, the tissues are turned to more or less a kind of plastic, not Lennon. They have this very work intensive process about every two years, takes about six weeks to to give him this chemical bath. There's a team of six employees in charge of preserving his body. They have to see to it that the shape, weight, color, limb flexibility and suppleness are all preserved. And sometimes they find little areas of decay that they have to take care of. Again, I apologize because I know this is this is just as morbid as can be. But um, the bottom line is they do their job well enough that he can be put on display and kept on display most of the time, with the exception of when he's uh, off having his, you know, biannual bath. Now, there's I have a lot of mixed feelings on this. Number one, it's 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 a fascinating thing. The first thing that struck me is it's a photo essay. So they're actually showing it. Um, And and yes, you you get to see uh, Vladimir Lenin's body with uh, nothing but a washcloth covering, you know, him uh, strategically. But it's a fascinating process. They don't use gloves. That that blew me away. The guys who are handling his body, they aren't even wearing plastic gloves. And then they show him back on display in his mausoleum, you know, this glass coffin, looking very much like a communist, murderous Snow White, waiting for the, you know, his prince to come kiss him and bring him back to life, I suppose. I don't know. It surprises me because the people who have been to Red Square, the people who have actually visited uh, Lenin's mausoleum have told me that there are guards everywhere watching every move every person makes when they enter that room. Like, um, I don't know why. There's still a tremendous amount of respect shown to this guy who was probably directly responsible for the deaths of, shall we say, about 100 million people. Or at least his actions set in motion events that would culminate in the deaths of 100 million people. But in the, in the words of one of the cowboys from Brokeback Mountain, it's like, for some reason, Russia says to Vladimir Lenin, I wish I knew how to quit you. Because they still keep him on display. I, I can't imagine why. But they took, they've got photos, so apparently it was okay to take photos for, for this uh, photo essay. I probably will post a link. I'm going to warn you, it's probably not for everybody, but... Just an, such an interesting twist. Number one, that that they go to such lengths to preserve his memory. By the way, I understand Ho Chi Minh, the uh, leader in, in Vietnam back at the time when uh, 
when you know we, the Vietnam conflict uh, began, his body is likewise preserved, and apparently they fly him his remains about twice a year to the same lab where they they take care of Vladimir Lenin. I know it's <clears throat> it's almost. Yeah, I'm going to say it. I think it's almost a form of idolatry. And I don't know if people are, you know, like literally gathering around, oh, we, we, we must worship Comrade Lenin, but the expense that they go to, to to preserve his body, the mausoleum itself is is quite an elaborate and ornate part of Red Square. I don't know. From a science and techie point of view, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. From a what the heck are people thinking point of view, though, that's that's the part that, that drew me in. And I promise I'll talk about something more uplifting <laughs> in the next segment, but um, I, I had no idea. And at the same time, I, I, I realized that, uh, yeah, number one, I could never be a uh, body conservationist. Number two, I don't think I would make a very good mortician either. I mean, my hat goes off to the people who work in mortuary science. And and one of the things that I love about these people, having been friends with a number of them, is that uh, they they are, if, if you want to talk about somebody who knows how to keep a secret or knows how to keep their mouth shut, these are the people. That's who you would trust. You want to you wanna have a confidant, somebody who you can absolutely trust and not go blabbing, you know, the latest juicy gossip? Become friends with a mortician. Whether it's by training or just the, the nature of what they, they have to do in the course of their, you know, day-to-day work, they're very good at, uh, at respecting privacy. All right. Sorry. I know I, I've, I've opened myself up to what well, you are just you're, you're weird. But here it is. It's Friday and I am weird. And so I, I will cop to that plea. Yes, <laughs> I just couldn't resist sharing this. And I will have a link in the show notes, which you can follow on the uh, podcast on anchor.fm. When we come back, we're going to talk about something that's uh, kind of semi related to Lenin. You've heard people say, well, it wasn't true socialism. Not necessarily about his brand of socialism, but uh, everything that has followed in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. We're going to talk about why is it people never say, well, that wasn't true capitalism. You don't hear people say that very much, do you? All right, we'll talk about it. This is Loving Liberty. Comrades, and welcome back to Loving Liberty. Sorry, it just seemed like the proper way to uh, address the audience after spending a little time talking about Comrade Lenin and how his body is kept preserved for public display. Let's talk a little bit about capitalism. You've heard, I'm sure you've heard the phrase. You've heard people talk about how, well, now, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't know, uh, or how would they say it? We haven't seen socialism really work because nobody has tried True socialism. But you don't hear people say that about capitalism. And there's a terrific article on Foundation for Economic Education's website by Christian Nemitz. 
why you never hear anyone say that wasn't real capitalism. And he starts with a, with a reference to Der Heimlich Aufmarsch. I'm not saying it right. I need my German son-in-law to uh, to give me the, the proper pronunciation here. But it's the secret deployment. It's an old socialist revolutionary song from the Weimar Republic. And it calls upon the workers and peasants to arm themselves, to rise up and smash the system. Well, apparently 30 years later, a modified version of the song was re-released in the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. It was now called Der Offenaufmarsch, the open deployment, to reflect the fact that there was no longer any need for secrecy. The workers and the peasants had already risen up with a little help from their Soviet comrades, and the working class as a whole was now collectively in charge. At least that was the official narrative codified in the East German Constitution. Here's how it put it, quote, The German Democratic Republic is a socialist state of the workers and the peasants. It is the political organization of the laborers in town and country under the leadership of the working class, end quote. So you don't have to be a socialist to get the appeal of songs like Der Heimlich Aufmarsch at a visceral level. It's gripping, it's stirring, it's full of righteous rage. But in the GDR sanitized re-release, not much of that energy survives. So while the original version is revolutionary, the newer one is fundamentally conservative. Workers and peasants are no longer implored to rise up, but rather to double down, to fulfill their duties and defend the status quo. Where the old version says... Then from the ruins of the old order shall arise the socialist world republic. The new version says, today socialism is a global power. Now here, Christian Nemitz says, why am I telling you this? He says, it's got to do with some of the responses to my book, Socialism, the Failed Idea that Never Dies. This book shows how Western intellectuals have long had a habit of lauding socialist experiments as long as they were in their prime only to disown them later, now claiming, well, that was never really socialist to begin with. And he says, one of the most common responses I've been receiving lately is, but you could say the exact same thing about capitalism. Is your next, is your next book going to be called Capitalism, the Failed Idea That Never Dies? He says, it kind of reminds me of playground spats where children whose verbal abilities aren't quite that well developed yet often respond to taunts by simply redirecting the same taunt back, no, you are. Now, this, of course, only works in a pot-calling-the-kettle-black situation, where your opponent is actually guilty of the same thing that they're accusing you of. And this isn't really the case here. You couldn't say the same thing about capitalism. He says, show me an example of free market liberals acting in the name, or acting in the same way that socialist intellectuals are that he cites in his book. Or he says, name a country that free marketeers used to praise to the skies that they now dismiss as that was not real capitalism. And he says, you can't. Because this doesn't happen. Quite the opposite. In fact, he talks about how he recently reread a few passages from Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, first published in 1980. And in terms of the places Friedman singles out as positive examples, he says, I was struck by how little has changed since then. Friedman was very positive about the economy of Hong Kong and to a lesser extent, the other Asian tigers like Taiwan or Singapore. He described Switzerland as a bastion of capitalism. And he was cautiously optimistic that Britain's then new prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, would change the country for the better. He didn't mention Chile in this book, presumably aware that any positive support about the Chilean economy might be misconstrued as support for the Pinochet dictatorship. But we know from statements he made elsewhere around that time that he was also optimistic about Chile's future economic prospects. Well, that was four decades ago. 
If you asked a free marketeer today to name a successful capitalist economy, what examples would they pick? And he says probably more or less the same ones that Friedman picked back in 1980. Switzerland would almost certainly come up. Likewise, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan might get a cameo appearance as well. They might even point to Chile's relative success, but they might be lukewarm about the situation in Britain today. But they would certainly judge post-Thatcher Britain much more favorably than pre-Thatcher Britain. And they'd probably mention how New Zealand has been catching up since the pro-market reforms of the 1980s. In short, free marketeers are consistent to the point of being bores. If there's an economic model that we praised 40 years ago, there's a high chance we're still praising it today. And if there's an economic model that we're praising today, there's a high chance we'll still be praising it, that we were praising it 40 years ago. It's the exact opposite of the socialist utopia hopping he describes in his book. And here's his point. Socialists are novelty seekers. They have to be, because socialist experiments never age well. (laughs) Not as well as Lenin, anyways. It's very easy to become a socialist, he says, but if you want to remain one for long, you need the ability to quietly drop and then selectively forget socialist experiments when they turn sour and then quickly move on to the next one. You need to be able to quickly unpin your hopes from the latest failed experiment and pin them on the next one instead. He says socialists are at their best when they can describe their projects in diffuse, abstract terms. This is why the most popular socialist movements are always those that are either in the ascendant, but not in power just yet, or those that have come to power very recently, but they haven't fully settled yet. So everything is still in flux. Socialists are at their worst when they have to answer mundane questions, when they have to spell out in tangible terms how a system based on their high-minded ideals would work in practice. Actually, existing socialist regimes, of course, have to do this eventually. And since this cannot be done, they can never keep the initial enthusiasm alive for long. That's why the above-mentioned contrast between Der Heimlich Aufmarsch and Der Offen Aufmarsch is a good illustration. The GDR regime evidently tried unconvincingly to extract, bottle, and store the energy contained in the old revolutionary songs. But he says socialism needs the thrill of the novel. The excitement of smashing things up, the buzz of overthrowing an established order and starting from scratch again. It no longer works once socialism is the established order. Once it becomes clear that that order falls short of the initial expectations and once it dawns on you that it's not going to get any better than this. Now, Christian Nemitz says liberals don't have that problem. The economic models we hold up usually do deliver, or at least they deliver 7 out of 10. When he's talking liberals, he's talking classical liberals. Just Sorry, I have to keep emphasizing this, but too many of us have been trained to think of, ah, are you talking progressives? No, he's talking classical liberals. So we can praise the same models for decades in a row, and we're not looking for excitement, novelty, or an adrenaline rush from political ideas anyway. That's a pretty interesting slant. I rather like it. By the way, this article was originally published in the Institute of Economic Affairs. Again, Dr. Christian Nemitz is with the Institute for Economic Affairs. He's their head of health and welfare. I'll have this posted in the show notes. Why you never hear anyone say that wasn't real capitalism. And by the way, don't don't misunderstand this as, as trying to make the case. Therefore, capitalism is flawless. Look, you're dealing with human beings, right? Can we at least agree with that? Human beings are fallible. Human beings are prone to human nature. 
And capitalism can definitely be abused. I think the most obvious form of this is what we would call crony capitalism. Where businesses or industries looking to get ahead strategically choose to fall madly in bed with government. And for some reason, that seems to be the magic formula that uh, erects barriers to prevent any uh, newcomers from entering the market and possibly providing them competition that they don't want to deal with. Or it um, provides subsidies for them at the taxpayer's expense. I just want to suggest that is not free market capitalism. <laughs> it's crony capitalism. And it's, it's not what uh, we should first think of when you hear the term capitalism. We'll take a quick break. News headlines are on the way next. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. Look, I understand. I am all over the road right now. I'm I'm just I, I found a, a number of different differing uh, different subjects and and uh, widely divergent ideas to share with you and uh, I hope you don't mind. There there is no particular theme to today's show, but I'm trying to follow a narrative that uh, that doesn't take too many sharp turns. So hopefully this isn't a 90 degree turn and you're going, wait, wait, what? How come he left me hanging out here in the cornfield? So here we go. Found a great column from Lawrence W. Reed. Now, I actually call him Larry, but uh, I feel like I, I have that. First of all, he tells me, call me Larry. I produce his weekly The Reed Hour program, which airs every Tuesday afternoon, 1 p.m. Mountain Time here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And before I share this column with you, I'm, I'm going to gush just a little bit about uh, what a great individual Larry Reed is. I've only, I've only had his acquaintance here for about the last year and a half, but I just, I have so much love and respect for this man. I think he is probably one of the finest ambassadors for the message of freedom. And I mean legitimate freedom. Walking the planet today. And, and by the way, he travels the entire planet. He takes that message far and wide. Uh, travel is a part of what he does, but it's not just a superficial, oh, look, I'm a rock star, and, you know, people come and touch the hem of my garment or whatever. He, he sincerely goes forward with the, the desire and the capability of helping people see the beauty and the majesty of the cause of freedom, no matter where they are. And there are a lot of countries right now, I, we, we take it kind of for granted. For whatever problems we have, there are, there are countries that are struggling far more than we are with the question of, will we be free? And when Larry goes and he speaks, I mean, he speaks to large crowds of people and, and just he brings hope. He brings perspective. He brings stories of greatness. Individuals that you probably have never heard of who nonetheless are doing what they can to, to just simply move the world in a, in a positive direction. And it's by little things that this is actually done. 
In fact, uh, without putting too fine a point on it, I'll just tell you, Larry Reed is one of the reasons why I have less emotional investment in what's happening politically and much more investment in what can I be doing personally within my own little sphere of influence. And that's a message I try to convey to you on a regular basis. Little things done in great ways still count. And I think Larry has been a a remarkable example of this and and a guy who has magnified his influence to where when he talks talks about free market economics, he talks about personal liberty, he talks about property rights, or just basic human goodness or the connection between personal character and freedom. He can do so with credibility. And since a lot of the discussion that we're hearing right now, and this is particularly true with the Democratic debates that took place earlier this week, have to do with, you know, well, I've got a program and this is going to solve these people's problems and those people's problems. We hear tons of talk about how we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it's often referred to in the context of, well, you have a right to a college education. You have a right to delicious, fat-free food on demand, whatever it may be. But that blurs the line between what actually are rights that protect us from the power of government and what become enforced obligations that are mistakenly referred to as rights. Now, this is uh, an essay he wrote or had published back in 2009. So this is 10 years old. It's titled, Who Owes What to Whom? And listen to what he has to say here. He says, for a society that is fed, clothed, housed, cared for, informed, entertained, and otherwise enriched more people at higher levels than any in the history of the planet, there sure is a lot of groundless guilt in America. And he says, manifestations of that guilt abound. The example that peeves me the most is the one we hear from well-meaning philanthropists who adorn their charitable giving with this little chestnut. I want to give something back. It's almost like they're apologizing for having been successful. Translated, he says, that statement means something like this. I've accumulated some wealth over the years. Never mind how I did it. I just feel guilty for having done it. There's something wrong with my having more than anybody else. But don't ask me to explain how or why, because it's just a fuzzy, uneasy feeling on my part. Because I have something, I feel obligated to have less of it. It makes me feel good to give it away, because doing so expunges me of the sin of not ha- of having it rather in the first place. Now I'm a good guy, am I not? <laughs> he says, it was apparent to me how deeply ingrained this mindset has become when I visited the grave of John D. Rockefeller at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland a few years ago. The wording on the nearby plaque commemorating the life of this remarkable entrepreneur implied that giving giving much of his fortune away was as worthy an achievement as building the great international enterprise Standard Oil that produced it in the first place. The history books most kids learn from these days go a step further. They routinely criticize people like Rockefeller for the wealth they created and for the profit motive or self-interest that played a part in their creating it while lauding them for relieving themselves of that money. He says, more than once, philanthropists have bestowed contributions on my organization and explained they were giving something back. They meant that by giving to us, they were paying some debt to society at large. And he says, it turns out that with few exceptions, these philanthropists really had not done anything wrong. They made money in their lives, to be sure, but they didn't steal it. They took risks they didn't have to. 
They invested their own funds or what they first borrowed and paid back later with interest. They created jobs, paid market wages to willing workers, and thereby generated livelihoods for thousands of families. They invented things that didn't exist before, some of which saved lives and made us healthier. They manufactured products and provided services for which they asked and received market prices. They had willing and eager customers who came back for more again and again. And they had stockholders to whom they had to offer favorable returns. They also had competitors and had to stay on top of things or lose out to them. They didn't use force to get where they got. They relied on free exchange and voluntary contract. They paid their bills and debts in full. And every year they donated some of their profits to lots of community charities no law required them to support. Not a one of them that I know ever did any jail time for anything. And he asks, so how is it that anybody can add all that up and still feel guilty? He says, I suspect that if they're genuinely guilty of anything, it's allowing themselves to be intimidated by the losers and the envious of the world. The people who are in the redistribution business, either because they don't know how to create anything or they simply choose the easy way out. They just take what they want or hire politicians to take it for them. Or, like a few in the clergy who think that wealth is not made but simply collected, the redistributionists lay a trip, a guilt trip on people until they disgorge their lucre, notwithstanding the Tenth Commandment against coveting. Certainly people of faith have an obligation to support their church, mosque, or synagogue, but that's another matter, not at issue here. He says a person who breaches a contract owes something, but it's to the specific party on the other side of the deal. Steal somebody else's property, and you owe, the per- you owe it to the person you stole it from, not society, to give it back. Those obligations are real, and they stem from a voluntary agreement in the first instance or from an immoral act of theft in the second. This business of giving something back simply because you earned it amounts to manufacturing mystical obligations where none exist in reality. It turns the whole concept of debt on its head. To give back means it wasn't yours in the first place. But the creation of wealth through private initiative and voluntary exchange does not involve the expropriation of anyone's rightful property. And he asks, how could it possibly be otherwise? By what rational measure does a successful person in a free market who has made good on all his debts and obligations in the traditional sense owe something further to a nebulous entity called society? If Entrepreneur X earns a billion dollars and Entrepreneur Y earns two billion, would it make sense to say that Y should give back twice as much as X? And if so, who should decide to whom he owes it? He says, clearly the whole notion of giving something back just because you have it is built on intellectual quicksand. Look, successful people who earn their wealth through free and peaceful exchange, they may choose to give some of it away, but they'd be no less moral and no less debt free if they gave away nothing. It cheapens the powerful charitable impulse that all but a few people possess to suggest that charity is equivalent to debt service or that it should be motivated by any degree of guilt or self-flagellation. He says, when you give, you should do so because of the personal satisfaction you derive from supporting worthy causes, not because you need to salve a guilty conscience. Well said, Larry Reed. We'll be back right after these messages. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I really am trying to weave somewhat of a, uh, you know, cohesive narrative for this hour, but uh, I'm, I'm really all over the place here. And I'm I'm not sure how this actually fits in, but I want to share an article with you about hacking homo sapiens. This is from Intellectual Takeout. David Evans is the author. And he's talking about Elon Musk. Now, you want to talk about an entrepreneur. So here's here's my tenuous connection here. We're just talking about people who have earned, you know, their money and and uh, who don't feel the need to give something back. Well, Elon Musk uh, is definitely a very successful entrepreneur, although uh, I think my friend Eric Peters would point out uh, a lot of that success has come from subsidizing on the part of government, particularly with Tesla Motors. And Elon's done some pretty interesting things like with SpaceX. I have to admit, I'm a little bit of a fanboy in the sense that when I see, oh, look, there's a new SpaceX video coming out and, and they'll show the space launch and everything. It's one of the coolest things that I've seen. Now, this is, you know, speaking as a kid who grew up watching, you know, the last of the Apollo missions and, um, you know, some of the some of the big uh advances for instance the space shuttle i remember when space shuttle columbia or actually enterprise was the first one wasn't it and and when columbia you know first took off and the space shuttle challenger space shuttle challenger disaster and so forth always had a little bit of interest in that and and spacex is doing some truly incredible stuff and it's dang impressive how they can show you with a little graph on the bottom of the screen. Okay, here's what's happening now. Here's the launch. Here we have, you can follow it through all the way up to, okay, now we've uh, we've sent the payload into orbit or we've sent this on and now the boosters are going to come back and they come back at the same time, these twin sonic booms and there's cameras on board the boosters as they come and they land perfectly on their landing pads. That's when I really get a sense, man. We are living in the future. We are. <laughs> we're there. It's not quite the Jetsons, but it's pretty neat. Some of the stuff, though, makes you scratch your head. And this is one of those things. Hacking Homo sapiens. David Evans writes, live your best life is one of those things that people like to pass around like a verbal head cold. Nobody's sure who started it, but they're all too eager to pass the phrase on anyway. Never addressed, though, is what your best life looks for or looks like, rather. Never fear, he says. Elon Musk is here, recently announcing that his company Neuralink has created a new brain interface device. Musk laid out a a common vision for our best lives by declaring, we will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to us, to service us, rather. Resistance is futile. We'll hear. Maybe maybe you should hear him him tell it in, in his own words. Shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. There we go. Live your best life. More like live your Borg life. Now, look, jokes and pop culture thumbsuckery aside, such technological terrors lie hopefully far from Musk's mind. According to Scientific American, Musk's immediate goal for his new device is to allow people with quadriplegia to control a computer or a smartphone using just their thoughts. Scientific American continues, Musk's vision is much more ambitious than that. 
He seeks to enable humans to merge with AI, giving people superhuman intelligence. Put another way, Musk wants us to have miniaturized C-3PO's melded onto our cerebral cortexes. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Now, much like the time, uh, this, this is where the author says, much like the time I discovered a colony of grasshoppers living in my dresser, a few things jump out at me. First and foremost, whenever talk of human enhancement rears its ugly metallic head, cliched responses ring out as surely as gunshots at hillbilly happy hour. Skeptics react like they've just swallowed their grandmother's dentures, and true believers' faces light up like preschoolers given unlimited access to an Oreo factory. Yet for those of us outside the loop, the question arises as to why any normal person would want scientists to stick pieces of silicone into our very non-silicone craniums. Well, in theory, it's supposed to make us better. As Yuval Harai, Harari rather, argues in his book, Homo Deus, sequel to the runaway hit Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, upgrading humans is the next logical step of evolution, making us smarter and more productive. Or as MIT Technology Review notes, technology, like interfacing with AI, could allow people to make themselves better than well. But he says, here's the other thing I realized. Is being smarter, more productive, or even telepathic actually better? It seems that equating better with being smarter or richer is an assumption on the part of technophiles like Musk or Harari. Not that those things are necessarily bad, but he says, I cannot help but feel it's a tad narrow-minded. As economist Joseph Schumpeter noted, Though the the modern age is swamped with technological betterment, there's no data to suggest that people are living happier or more fulfilled lives. In fact, as a quick aside here, with all that technological betterment, all the screens and social media and ways of being connected that we didn't have before. I know my wife comes home regularly from her trainings as a middle school teacher. And talks about how they're, they're having to have special training and having to, to really delve into how do we help the kids. Because the young people that she's teaching have levels of anxiety that are off the charts. I'm not just talking about, oh, they've got a little test anxiety. They're worried about, you know, doing well or whatever. We're talking, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I'm making light of this. This is very serious. They have kill yourself levels of anxiety. Now, nobody said it's easy being a young person, particularly as you're entering puberty and adolescence. But one of the connections that's being explored is the possibility that those screens, addiction to screen time, addiction to social media, is helping to fuel some of that off-the-charts anxiety. So, yeah, the technology is great, and in many ways it has. It's made my life a lot easier. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's the key to living happier or more fulfilled lives. We'll actually talk a little bit more about this in the next hour. So the author here, David Evans, says perhaps the better the path to better lives lie not as Musk would have us believe through borgification, but rather through what emperor philosopher Marcus Aurelius termed good fortune. Now, Aurelius didn't mean that the betterment results from chance or luck or even a clairvoyant fortune teller. Rather, Aurelius asserted that true good fortune is what you make for yourself. And listen to the listen to the priorities here. Good character, good intentions, 
and good actions. Now, again, as an aside, I'm just going to suggest a person who is focused on cultivating and developing good character, good intentions and good actions. I don't care if they are living in a single wide trailer or a 20 room mansion. I think the chances of them being happier and more fulfilled in their lives are greater if that is their primary focus. Like David Evans says, as opposed to the better life offered by Musk and uh, the others of a cyborgic future where we all merge with artificial intelligence in a communion almost as wondrous as that of chocolate and peanut butter. Aurelius and other ancient philosophers argued that the best life to possess is good character. To live each day as if it were your last without frenzy, without apathy, without pretense. Yeah, he said that a long time ago, though. We've come a long way, but does it still ring true? I mean, is that that not the test of wisdom? Something that would be true in any time or any place? I think he passes the test of time on this one. Marcus Aurelius. As David Evans says, compared to Musk's spectacular visions of human enhancement, Aurelius's exhortations to pursue good character possesses all the sexiness of a stodgy stockbroker. But is the promise of a better life that Aurelius offers far more actionable and affordable for the average person than Elon Musk's vision of a cybernetic future? I think it's a fair question. Look, I love seeing the advances that are taking place. I'm not I'm not afraid of robots. Some people, well, the robot's going to take all of our jobs and then Skynet's going to come along and decide to kill us. Eh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that uh, Terminator was necessarily a, a prophetic film, but it is neat to see how it frees us up to pursue other things that are more uniquely suited to human beings. Whether or not that means we need to merge ourselves with artificial intelligence, eh, I'm not convinced. I'm grateful for the opportunities we have, but at the same time, I would, I would agree. Let's not forget what it means to be human. I'll just leave it at that. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 